All right, folks, we're back with all your favorite events, namely seminars and training camps. So let's talk seminars first up. June 26th through 28th, we still have spots available for the Wichita Falls seminar. Then we'll be back in Wichita Falls on September 11th through the 13th. And then over to Denver at Starting Strength Denver, October 16th through the 18th. We have a squat camp in Seoul, South Korea with one spot left. Then we have a deadlift and power clean camp in October at Woodmere. Following camps are going to be squat and deadlift camps. The next available squat and deadlift camp is going to be on June 27th in Phoenix, Arizona. Then Bellevue, Washington on August 1st. Boise, Idaho on August 2nd. And we've added a few more spots to Minneapolis. We've actually added a spot to August 23rd and we've added an entire new camp on August 22nd. After that, we'll be in Moodis, Connecticut on September 19th at Anino Strength. We also have our new three lift camp available. That's covering the squat, the press, and the deadlift. The first one of those will be in Baltimore on July 19th, and then Singapore on November 29th. Again, if you're looking to become a starting strength coach or just get better at coaching the lifts, we have our coaching development camp on June 20th in Houston, Texas, covering the power clean. And then rounding out our camps will be a nutrition camp at Chicago Strength and Conditioning on September 12th. All of our starting strength gyms are back open and operating with new ones to come online soon. For location information or to request more information about how to get a starting strength gym in your city, head over to locations.startingstrengthgyms.com. And as usual, for more information on any of the events that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet, ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. It's Friday, and I'm not. And uh, you're probably not Friday either. You're just whoever you are. But here we are again. It's Friday, and it's time for you to listen to the terribly important things that we have to tell you this weekend on Starting Strength Radio. This weekend, we're going to do another of our Q&As. We've been having quite a few questions about various aspects of various things. And so we're going to talk uh, about several different things today uh, and answer questions that you have sent in to radio at startingstrength.com. Radio at startingstrength.com. Radio at startingstrength.com is the email address for your questions. All right, but first, I'm going to do some extra reverby stuff today. So let's see how this works out. Ready? Comments from the heaters. Do you like that? I do that all with my voice. You know, I know some of you probably think that's post-production shit, but no. That's not Rusty doing that. That's me. I'll, if you'll come to a seminar, I'll show you. Our seminar, by the way, is June the 26th, 27th, 28th. So here in about, what, four weeks? Uh, four weeks from today? No, three. This is Friday, remember. Three? Three weeks. Three weeks from today. And we've got some room. So you could, if you're tired of being not allowed 
to go out of your house or not allowed to train, then come to the seminar. I will allow you to train and to learn things at the seminar. So, rip looks like 10 pounds of shark shit in a five-pound bucket. You like that? Oh, I thought that was hadn't heard the shark shit variation of that, but it is pretty good. Why are you so mean to Bree? She's really sweet, and you're just a nasty, fat, pink fuck. <laughs> I'm not nasty to Bree. True story. I'm not nasty. I'm I'm inappropriate with Bree. I. For, also true. I, 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 but I'm not nasty to her. Uh, in fact, I was going to ask her a question. Bree, when you go to the bathroom in here in the office, do you actually close the door? Sometimes. I don't. I know. I never do. You know. Uh, but, like, when you're over here by yourself, you don't close the door, do you? Sometimes. Do you really? When there's nobody else in the building, you close the door? Oh, that's some pretty good programming there, man. You've been conditioned, haven't you? I mean, it's fine with me. I don't care if you do. I'm not going to say anything to you about it, but it is kind of odd. But, uh, One day I would like to meet Mark and shake the hand of the man behind starting strength. My fear is that in real life he is not as warm and cuddly as he appears on these podcasts. <laughs> Do I appear warm and cuddly on these podcasts to you? Maybe he's being facetious, you think? Maybe he thinks pink and fat is cuddly. Pink and fat is cuddly? Yeah. Like when he was a kid, that little doll his mom gave him, yeah, right. and he still associates that with cuddly. Yep. You never want to meet people you like anyway no you don't it's never they always disappoint you they always disappoint you like you know i think i always think i'd like to meet sam elliott he's probably a prick nope. i can't see how he is but he probably is because because you're right that's the general rule you know people disappoint you you know here i am five years later disappointed as hell <laughs> and what and, and with absolutely be, nothing you can do nothing, about it yep. And nothing to show for it. <clears throat> nothing to show for it. Nothing you can do about it. That's what we call a dead end. <laughs> oh, God damn. Oh, here's somebody making a comment about the, what did we title the last podcast? Back to the old normal. Back to nor the old normal. This guy says, these hicks need to wake up. There's no more old normal to be gotten back to. The media and the experts already already determined that from now on, there will only be the new normal. And even to that, people will only be allowed to return slowly in batches, according to the last digit of the number in their soon-to-be-issued Health ID Universal Vaccination Card Health Passport. Also, the money is going to be redesigned to include the motto, In Science We Trust. 
Well, he's right. Yeah. It's coming. Yeah, yeah. Does the self-proclaimed genius Rip understand that? And everything that follows that is complete bullshit. <laughs> that models were predictive. No, they weren't. Not at all. There is no perfect prediction. No, there's not. So why was policy made on prediction? And almost all never took social distancing into play. That's absolutely not true. That's absolutely not true. All except the first models took social distancing into play, which doesn't work, by the way. What the fuck does Rip think flattening the curve means? That is literally changing the model, oh, pink maestro. Okay, flattening the curve. Uh, if you had differential calculus, MSN, if you had differential calculus, you understand what the area under the curve is. When you take a, a curve and you increase the height and you, uh, you calculate the area under the, under the very high curve and then you flatten that curve by increasing uh, the leptocurtic nature of the curve, you very well may have the same and probably do have just about, in this particular instance, exactly the same area under the curve. In other words, the same number of people getting sick. The whole idea behind flattening the curve, dumbass, was to not overwhelm the healthcare system, which was so thoroughly underwhelmed by these by this brilliant idea that hospitals all over the goddamn country are going bankrupt you stupid bastard so all right rip should shut up about covid-19 because of his and other right wing meatheads voting 100,000 Americans have died because of Trump's appalling response 100,000 and counting. Stick to weights, dude. Not everything gels with your libertarian, right-wing, nonsensical view of the world. All right. As of today, 108,000 people have died of COVID in the United States. And this young Archimedes here is suggesting that none of them would have died had it not been for Trump's Appalling response. <laughs> I don't know, man. You know where you get this? CNN. If all you watch are those fucking imbeciles on CNN, that's where you come up with this kind of silly bullshit. And that's... <clears throat> Let me do this correctly. <clears throat> clear my throat so that the accentuated reverb I'm about to do is even more striking. Comments, Comments. From, from the, the heaters. 
It's fun to be able to do that. If you'll come to a seminar, I'll show you. I just do that all with my voice. Right, Nick? It's worth the price of admission. It's just to hear me do that shit. Well, we do have fun at seminars. It's I think time. that I'm. It's a good time. It's Learn a whole bunch of shit. I'm way funnier in person than I am here. And cuddlier. I'm much cuddlier. Yeah. I'm not as pink. Yep. Do you know how much UV I'm absorbing from these fucking lights here? That, why do you think I'm pink? Yep. It's the UV from these uh, one, two, three, four, five, six lights on me right now. What color do you want me to be? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't get black for you. I know you'd prefer that, but I, I'm sorry. I've tried. I can't do it. I just don't tan that well. Although I tan pretty good. Yeah, that one right? spot on the top of your forearm looks real nice. Does it? Yep. Look at all the little brown spots on the back of my hand here. See that? Is that desirable? I think it's melanoma. There's one right here. Oh, that's only been there a couple of days. Ah, uh, maybe it'll heal. <laughs> try, try, maybe it'll heal. Try it. carnivore. That might heal it. You think carnivore will heal it right up? Yeah. Take all the After carrots all, out. Inflammation. Yeah. Take the carrots out of my diet. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. You ever notice how brown brie is? She tans, though. I don't know if I ever do that. Bottle or you lay in a machine? Why don't you just go outside and lay under the big machine in the sky? What? It takes the same amount it's, of time. It's the same amount of time. What are you talking about? And you don't have to go anywhere. Just go out in the backyard. Oh, you don't have a backyard. I'm sorry. Keep... I didn't mean to point out Bree's poverty. <laughs> okay. Now, here is a question. Let's start our questions, shall we? Let's start our questions. This guy uh, actually ordered some shit from us. And... Uh, you know, all the international orders are all fucked up right now and everything. You know, I ordered uh, some tea from the U.K. in March. Two big bags of kilo and a half bags of PG tips, which I like to drink for breakfast. Still not here. Since March? Middle of March. Oh, shit. It was shipped like the day after. And it's somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> I guess maybe just floating there by itself. Who knows if, if you're on a ship in the middle of the Atlantic ocean and you see my tea, would you pick it up and just bring it with you? Does the UK still ship tea across the, the Atlantic? I thought that stopped in 1775. Well, it should have stopped in 1775, but it 1774, actually. whenever the hell that tea party thing was, that should have taught them a couple of things, but now they're slow over there. Yeah. Slow learners. Haven't learned. So uh, he's got a question. He said, well, I tell you what, if you'll answer my question, I won't be mad at you about the 
delaying the order, even though it's not our fault now, is it? Right? I mean, when did we ship that? Brief, the day after the order. We always do that, right? We turn these things around 24 hours and get them the hell out of the office just so it's not our fault, right? And in this case, it's not our fault. We can't control what happens to the thing once it leaves the dock, right? But in this particular instance, we I was instructed to pander to this individual, so I'm going to read this question. It says, hi, Rip, I'm 53, 225, lifting for a year or so. Squats heavier than deadlift. Doesn't seem right. When I try for a deadlift PR, I get it off the ground an inch or two before I drop it. He squats 397. His deadlift is 369. But he can rack pull 485. He's mentioned 230 press and 165. His, with his gym reopening in the next few weeks, his plan is to restart novice program to the letter. Hopey, hopefully that will correct everything. Cheers, Frank. Frank, listen. Frank, uh, I can't answer this question without knowing a whole bunch of shit you didn't include in here, okay? Now, typically when we see people with that are squatting more than they're pulling, there's, it's one of two situations. A, your squats aren't below parallel, right? So you're cutting off your squats. You're cheating the squat. Your squats are high. I have no video here. I can't tell that. Or B, you're just not built very well for the deadlift. When I say built not very well for the deadlift, I mean one of two things. It could be that you've got a very short set of legs on you and very long back, and you're just having trouble getting into a good pulling position. Or B, there's something going on with your grip. All right. Now, people with little bitty stubby short fingers, like little Vienna sausages, do people still know what those are? Vienna sausages? People like they still Brie make with, those? People like Brie with no backyards now. People, with, people in poverty like Brie with no backyards usually have a can of little Vietnamese sausages every day for lunch. They smash them between two saltines. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good though. I couldn't eat it every day like Bree does, but I, I, uh, I do like them. I, you know, they're kind of cool. Little Vietnamese sausages in a can. You've seen them. Wait, are you calling them Vietnamese sausages? Oh, I'm sorry, Vienna sausages. Vietnamese sausages are a whole different thing. Are they? Yeah. Are they better than Vienna sausages? The Austrians make an inferior product to the Vietnamese. I wouldn't. I wouldn't try them. God knows what they make them out of. Man. <laughs> uh, so if your fingers look like little Vietnamese sausages, then you've got a problem and you can't hold on to the bar. Now, you know, over the years, we've seen some astonishing things here at Starting Strength. We've been contacted by people who are having problems holding on to their deadlift that are not using, they're not using chalk. Now... <laughs> And I don't, Frank, I'm not accusing you of this, but are you using chalk? Maybe you should think about getting some chalk because that'll help. Are you using a hook grip? Are you using the standard alternate grip 
that most people use on the deadlift. These things are all important factors, and you haven't mentioned them. And I have no way of telling why. But if the pull gets an inch off the ground or two before I drop it, well, here's my first question. Why did you drop it? You didn't want to keep pulling on it? Deadlifts are hard, Frank. You got to pull on them when you don't want to. That's how they go up. That fifth rep, you know, I know you don't want to pull on it, but if you set it down, you voluntarily set it down before it either grinds to a stop or falls out of your hands, then you haven't finished the pull. So without uh, knowing that, I really can't answer the question. But I did my job, right? I'm off the hook. I said I'd answer the question. I answered it, right? Uh, when somebody's when somebody's squat is way ahead of their deadlift, yeah. doesn't that usually indicate to you that they're probably squatting high? That's the first thing I assume. Yep. It's always the first thing I assume because I just assume that people are smart enough to use chalk and are using an alternate grip doing the things that you, you everybody's supposed to do to ensure that they can finish a deadlift. But, I, yeah, if you've got an artificially high squat – I mean, an artificially heavy squat because it's high. Uh, then, uh, then you've got uh, bad data here. Uh, I mean, the squat generally indicates that. I mean, you ought to be at this, especially at this level of training advancement. You ought to be deadlifting more than you're squatting at fifty pounds. You know, and when we see something other than that, we first thing we suspect is you're chopping your squats off real high. And the second thing we suspect is Vietnamese sausage fingers. Hello, Rip. Big fan of your radio show and YouTube videos. He spells Rip with two P's here. Do you see people doing that all the time? Quite a bit, yeah. It's, it's just it's one P. It's just one P. It's weird. It's a silent consonant. It's one syllable. Rip. Rip. How about three P's? Well, since the name's only spelled with two P, I guess it's, anyway. Big fan question for you is regard of is in regard of objectively measuring strength. I know that to get stronger, you need to move more weight in a specific movement pattern. But let me use one example. Let's say I can bench two twenty five for five. Then the following week, I bench two twenty five for six. Wouldn't that also be an increase in strength? Well, yeah, it it would. Uh, but if you could do 225 for six reps, you probably could have done 227 and a half for five reps, which would be more weight. And if you just keep increasing. So your next question is going to be, well, what about the following week? 225 for seven reps and then 225 for eight reps. Do you just not want to load 230 on the bar? Do you not have the plates to load 227? Fives are the rep range we like because they work better. Fives work better, and we know this because we've been doing it a long time, and that's just what works. All the arguments about fives have been presented in the book, Practical Programming for Strength Training, 3rd Edition. Okay, so... uh, just go up and wait. Keep the reps the same. Increase weight. Little bit at a time. Little bit. 
Not so much you can't make the jump. And keep thinking on down the road. It's this, this method is very simple. If you'll just quit being a pain in the ass about it, just, you know, we've already sorted out all the bad stuff. Everything we're telling you works. It does, really. Okay. Uh, here is... No. No. Don't do that. Uh, do you have any advice for getting rid of patellar tendinopathy in these trying times? I'm unable to box squat given my circumstance of gyms closed and no equipment. I had knee pain for... Three weeks before the shutdown, but I didn't want to quit squatting given the progress I was making. I haven't squatted since March 16. Soreness is still there, though somewhat better. Frictional massage, farm chores, staying active, blah, 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 blah. Look, here's the bad news. And we've discussed this several times. But since uh, you repeatedly ask, you're not listening. So here's the situation. Patellar tendonitis is almost always caused by bad form on the squats. It's almost always caused by knees to forward. It's almost always caused by you thinking that the squat is a legs exercise, that you're doing quads when you squat. The squat should be a hips movement. You have to learn to squat with your hips first and then understand, become nice and calm and satisfied with the idea that the quads get trained accidentally. But if you keep thinking that you're doing legs when you squat, you're going to probably develop knee tendonitis. So that's what probably what you did is you were squatting wrong. You knees slid forward at the bottom of the movement, one thing or another, knees too far forward, trying to front squat instead of squat. That will cause inflamed knees, inflamed patellar tendons. And here's the bad news. Once you get those things inflamed, they tend to stay that way. They tend to stay that way. Now, here's the other bad news. You cannot rest tendonitis away. Once a tendon is inflamed, it stays inflamed until it is trained through you can rest you can lay off two more years and i promise you that the first squat workout you came back to your knees that hurt so no there's not any way to massage knee tendonitis away if there was we'd already have done that right doesn't happen all right we can't massage knee tendonitis out you can do all that cross fiber and friction massage and all this other shit you want to do but it's not going to help the knee tendonitis that's not how it works. Knee tendonitis is uh, a permanent condition unless you train through it. So what you're going to have to do is watch some of our videos when you're finally allowed to go back to your training. And uh, you have to learn to bend over, sit back, get your knees as much as possible out of the movement. So that, the, so that the things can heal. All right, they'll heal up while you're squatting if you're doing the squats right, but they're not going to heal while you're sitting on your ass. That's not how it works. I don't care what your doctor told you. He's wrong. 
You've heard about being wrong before. Lots of times doctors are wrong when they tell you things that they don't know anything about. All right? And barbell training and knee tendonitis is one of those things they don't know anything about. So anything they told you about that was wrong. What are you doing with your other camera there? Stills, you mean? Okay. <clears throat> All right, here's a good one. <laughs> oh, you're fucking posing. Why are these goddamn glamour shots? Why do they always tell the fucking girl to do something with her hand? Yeah, do That looks so fucking stupid. And though, but they'll all do it. Yeah. yeah. They'll all do it anyway. Just like, yeah, like, like. Dear Mr. Rip, spelled correctly this one time, I own a small but successful business, a CrossFit affiliate in the UK, and I'm a big fan of starting strength in your podcast. What would you propose the best combination of the starting strength principles and the CrossFit methodology would look like in a one-hour class? I believe that strength is the most important attribute for any individual. We program the squat, press, deadlift, and clean at least once a week. We then provide a WOD, which I believe is a format you're familiar with. I've often considered how best to focus on strength development while still providing a significant conditioning piece in a 60-minute class. Our current model is working in so far as to say that all our clients are getting stronger while their conditioning is improving and our injury record is extremely low to negligible. However, I confess that I see that two focuses, see the two focuses he means to be at odds with one another. Well, yes. Sot, S-O-T. Sotiris is his first name. They call him Sot. Not because he's drunk, but because Sotiris is his first name. Here's the situation. One of the things that I learned a very long time ago in my CrossFit phase is that high-intensity glycolytic work done on a regular basis is absolutely antithetical to strength development. I know or knew a long time ago lots of, for example, muscular CrossFit-looking women that should have been way, way stronger than they were, uh, say, for example, on the deadlift, uh, considering the amount of muscle mass they were carrying. And uh, one girl in particular, dear friend of mine, PR deadlift was, was something like 315. And, uh, I, you know, I had, I had girls at the gym doing 365 that were not nearly as physically impressive as she was. You can't tell by looking. I understand that. But there's not any reason why a person that trains seven days a week shouldn't be strong enough to deadlift 365. And what it is is the fact that if you do 100 air squats as the conditioning element in your 
training day, your one-hour appointment, having just done a heavy set of five, you have undone, and then some, everything you accomplished by doing a heavy weight. You have to understand conditioning, especially if it's done incorrectly, which means random and crazy and against the clock and, you know, for competition and everything else. All of that is directly antithetical to strength acquisition. Uh, they're two separate adaptations, and they, they require two separate metabolic adaptations, and they don't work well together. Now, everybody that he trains, he says, is getting stronger. If you start from nothing, you're going to get stronger. But then we have to address what is optimal, all right? And he says here that uh, he believes that strength is the most important attribute for any individual. Well, if you really believe that, Sot, why don't you train them like you believe it? Because I understand that your clients want to get hot and sweaty because you've taught them that being hot and sweaty is good. Hot, sweaty, tired is exercise. That's what we do for today. That's the, the part of the ticket that you punch before you send these people home that convinces them that they've gotten their money's worth from you because you have not educated them correctly. If they're there to get stronger, make them stronger. Don't do things that you have taught them to perceive as good that are in actuality, in all actuality, uh, um, undoing the strength adaptation that you've tried to present to them during the course of the, of the week. I understand what your business model is, okay? But you're not asking me a business model question. You're asking me an exercise question. And if you want to train people for strength, then that's what you do. Perhaps you and they don't understand that in the process of taking somebody from no squat for three sets of five to 185 pounds for three sets of five, that conditioning is provided too. Everybody that has done three heavy sets of five across, if it's heavy, has experienced the fact that conditioning is provided by weight training. Now, turn that over on its head. Is strength provided by conditioning? No. So which do you do? Do you do the one that accomplishes both ends or the one that accomplishes badly one of those ends? Think about this. Okay. Can I propose a yeah. solution for you wanna, Scott? Yeah. If there is one, well, I'd like to hear it. Well, I'm not, he, he's probably not all the way convinced himself. He's not. Though, he, or he, he, wouldn't so. have, he wouldn't have phrased his question like so, this. So a, a good way for him to start is to take his class and do an eight-week strength cycle. Quote that's, that's really what most of these guys do. Yeah, or, set, or set up a separate class, make it voluntary. And watch what happens. You put and, and don't do any conditioning. Linear progression, three days a week. And then at the end of two months, you do a conditioning test. That's right. And guess what happens every single time? Conditioning is improved without doing any conditioning. 
every single time. We've been doing this now. I've been working with this this very topic for 14 years. And every single time it's done, that's what we see. Without exception, you get these people stronger, their conditioning goes up without doing any conditioning. All right? And it's a direct application of the two-factor model. Yes. Taking advantage of that two-factor model. You take eight weeks, 12 weeks ideally, right? Yeah. If, if you're going to convince... If you can stand it, yeah, well... If you can we, convince CrossFitters to give you two months, you probably can't. You know? Yeah, they're like talking to cyclists, yep. pretty much. Yep. They have to get hot, sweaty, and tired, or they're just not... You know, they're atoning for something. I don't know what. I'm not sure I want to know what. But they're atoning for something, and the pain is they're, – they're, they like being sore. They've been taught that soreness is the goal, not strength improvement. Okay? That's a, another discussion, right? Okay. Been having a lot of intense pain in my right knee around the area at the immediate top of the shin just below the kneecap. No official diagnosis, but all symptoms point to Osgood slaughters. Any advice, experience dealing with this, especially when deadlifting, as any impact or pressure in the area results in intense pain. Uh, Clint, how old are you? All right. Osgood slaughters disease is almost entirely a disease of adolescence. And early teenage people. Sometimes you'll see people with Osgood slaughters or maybe as old as 18, but there aren't anybody, nobody's got Osgood slaughters when they're 25 because it is an inflammation of the growth plate at the proximal tibia. That's what it is. It's an inflammation of the growth plate. People with Osgood slaughters will have an enlarged area on the anterior side of that growth plate. It's a bump and it does hurt. To hit it with a bar certainly does. Uh, but since growth plates settle down by the time you're post-adolescent, post-teenage, Osgood slaughters goes away. Depending on how, if you're 25 years old and you're writing me this, you've got something else going on. Osgood slaughters is what kids have. And what we do with it is we train through it. You you train through it. You squat, you deadlift. You try not to bump the knee. Put a wrap on it or whatever you need to do to not bump it because it does hurt and it's real distracting. But uh, Osgood Slaughters is a kid's thing. And if you're not a kid, that's not what you've got. Okay. Hi, Rip. Just over three weeks ago, I ruptured my Achilles tendon and had it surgically repaired using the Pars Arthrex technique. Rupture was on Saturday and the surgery was following Wednesday. As a novice, I had only been doing a starting strength program six weeks prior to the injury and was thoroughly enjoying it and happy with progress. Uh, great to find it'll be training instead of exercising. I'm somewhat dismayed at the doctor and physio suggested time frame for recovery. I'm hoping you have some experience working with this injury to be able to advise a better way forward. My questions are, recommendation for training, continue starting strength. Uh, okay, here's the deal. Uh, Adam is writing this. I had uh, this injury a little over 10 years ago myself. Uh, it was, oh, it's probably, no, it was probably right about this time. I remember it was warm that day, so it was at least April of 2010 when I did mine. My surgery was about a week later. Couldn't I 
had a travel commitment and I couldn't get in until about a week later. Uh, my surgeon put, he didn't use the pars arthrex technique, which is a kind of just been recently developed. It's kind of a, a jig they, uh, they attach to the, to the structure and use that to guide the repair. Uh, he just put a whole bunch. He asked me, he said, what do you want? Cosmetic perfection here? Or you want a strong repair? And I told him, I want the strongest repair I can get. I want you to put as much suture in the thing as you can get in it. I don't care what it looks like. He said, well, it's going to be bumpy. You know, I said, do I look like bumps are going to bother me? And he said, well, you have a good point. So, uh, and I also told him, and he knew from a couple of previous episodes how I was going to rehab the thing. So he put a bunch of suture in it, and uh, he sent me home. And uh, you're supposed to leave the thing in plantar flexion for uh, oh, something like four weeks while this thing thoroughly knits together and all this, all this kind of thing. And uh, needless to say, I didn't do that. I uh, took the plantar flexion heel blocks out when I got down to the car after the one-week checkup and uh, was in normal dorsiflexion at that point and uh, started training on it immediately. Uh, in other words, within seven days after the surgery, I was I was training on it. Now, when I, when I say I was training on it, what I was doing was some, I believe I started off with rack pulls, just standing on without any movement of the ankle and, and, and started doing some pulls. Now the, the pulls were rather light. I was working range of motion, but I wasn't working the range of motion in the injured ankle. I was just tightening it. I was just subjecting it to some, some normal stress. I was very careful about walking on it, although I did walk on it. I'll have to tell you I walked on it. Within two weeks after the surgery, I was walking on the thing, hobbling. You know, I wasn't running or anything stupid like that. But it has been my experience from all of the orthopedic surgeries I have had that Doctors will always tell you to be more conservative with it than is necessary. And this conservative approach considerably slows down the process of rehab. Now, I understand why they don't want you undoing their surgery. All right, I understand that completely. Uh, but I also understand that it's your leg, not his. And while... You're not going to do anything stupid. And by that, I mean you don't power clean for a year. While you're not going to do anything stupid, you have to cause the injury to heal. In every case, you must stress an injury so that the injured tissue receives enough signal that the remodeling process can actually happen at an effective rate. If you immobilize a fracture, for example, uh, the fracture won't heal. They used to people put people with broken femurs in traction in the hospital for a month, and then they'd find out, 
after a month of traction that no healing had taken place across the fracture plane. This is because the osteoblasts on either side of the fracture line don't know a fracture is there unless, because they're stupid, you know, they're just cells, you know, what do you want, you know? Sociology majors, they're just cells. They can't, you know, they're not real, real intelligent. So the signaling mechanism across the fracture plane tells the cells that a repair needs to be done, and that's the cell signaling mechanism that causes the remodeling process to take place. The same thing happens in every injury. The movement that is normal to that structure must at some level be restored to it or healing cannot take place. Now, so what I'm telling you is to go against medical advice because I think in this particular case, medical advice is covering your ass instead of uh, good medical advice. I'm telling you to do something your doctors told you not to do. Now, you can do that if you want to. I'm also telling you don't be stupid, all right? Pain is a very reliable indicator. But if there's not some discomfort, then there's not enough stress to force the adaptation. And in this case, the stress recovery adaptation cycle is also working, just like it does in the starting strength program you were enjoying prior to this injury. All right, stress recovery adaptation is how the adaptation occurs and in this case the adaptation is the whole healed up tendon stress must be applied to it or it won't heal you can't apply so much stress to it this is a very delicate process you can't apply so much stress to it that the repair is damaged but if you apply no stress to it like they want you to do then the healing takes maybe three times longer than it would under other circumstances, all right? Look at it like this. 30,000 years ago, you rupture your Achilles tendon. You're an old guy. You're 35, right? You jump down off of a cliff, and one of your feet lands on a rock under the ball of your foot. And the heel drops, and the Achilles tendon ruptures. And it's 30,000 years ago, and the orthopedic surgeon isn't available this weekend. What do you do? Do you get eaten by the hyenas? Because they'll be happy to help you. Or do you move? I'll bet you move. Now, you're not going to be able to walk on it, but you are going to move. And in the, in the, in the uh, process of walking on it as best you're able, some stress is applied to the structure. And eventually the damn thing heals because if it didn't heal under the, under the circumstances of movement, then we wouldn't be here. We would have all been eaten by the hyenas. All right? Now, some injuries are fatal. I understand that. But an Achilles tendon rupture is not one of them. Right? You break your pelvis falling off of that same cliff, you're going to be eaten by the hyenas, all right? But if uh, you do not take some of the responsibility for yourself for applying measured appropriate stress to the injury, you are going to take a lot longer to rehab 
and your rehab is going to be a lot less complete than it would be had you gone ahead and very carefully stressed the situation over time using your brain, okay? Now, uh, here's a 58-year-old Norwegian been trying to stay in shape. He's been training for, he worked, said he worked for 40 years. Well, that's productive. Traveling abroad, he's trying to start strength training again. A lot of stuff to learn. Squats, deadlifts, presses, chin-ups. He's got a rack made out of tuba-forks. Can you all see this? This is a classic example, as far as I'm concerned. How's that picture look? This is a classic example of building a car out of wood, as far as I'm concerned. I think you ought to just spring for an actual rack. Because the way he's got this thing constructed, this isn't going to last much longer. All right, This thing's on its last legs right now. And it just got built. All right? Uh, so, blah, blah, blah. He wants to know what percentage of his strength that he had previously developed when he was young will he come back to? In his 20s, he said he had a 400-pound uh, squat, 440 deadlift, 250 bench, uh, 27 reps with 285 in the squat. Uh what can he get back to? Well, you're 58. Jan, you're 58. Uh, you'll probably get back to that. I would say you'll get back to that. Now, were you 40, I would say you'd eclipse that. Were you 70, I would say you won't get back to uh, much more than 75% of that. But at 58, you may well get back to these numbers if you're very careful and don't hurt yourself. The thing that's going to prevent you from getting back to those numbers is you're going to do something stupid and you're going to hurt yourself. All right? You're going to get injured because with old guys, the thing that prevents progress is periodic injuries, and it just seems to happen whether you want it to or not. Whether you do anything stupid or not, it still happens. You know, injuries occur. But, you know, there are people, I hear them right now, they're saying, well, why would you want to do something that would hurt you? And uh, the answer to that is, so you're not a pussy. You don't want to be a pussy, do you? You know what I mean by pussy, right? I'm not talking about vagina. I'm talking about what you are when you're a chicken shit. Why would you not try to get strong? You want to be a pussy? Because if you intentionally try to not get strong, you're a pussy. Okay? And that's why Jan is, is trying to do this, because he's not a pussy. He wants to see what he can get accomplished. He wants to be strong. Strong is good. He knows that. If you don't agree, turn me off, okay? You don't like me saying pussy? Turn me off. I don't care. But you know what I mean when I say that word. It's very, very descriptive. 
And most of you understand that. So depending on where you start back, uh, that has a lot to do with how much you're going to recover. All right, at 58, I think that if you're, you know, at least moderately intelligent about this, that you can get back to a 405 squat. I don't see that that's necessarily a problem unless you've got a significant injury already that you haven't mentioned. Uh, I, I don't see that that is an unreasonable thing to do. Now, if you were 75, I would, I'd be less optimistic. If you were 40, I'd be yelling at you for even writing me the question. Okay. But uh, it's a good question. Uh, once a person has passed the novice stage of training, how would you recommend they train if they want to optimize power production? Okay. Uh, the reason I included this rather stupid question in here is because I wanted to take the opportunity to say again, and we've said this on several occasions, you don't really train power production. Once a person has passed the novice stage of training, how would you recommend they train if they want to optimize power production? Well, if you want to optimize power production, you're going to have to do some cleans and some explosive activities, right? But as we've said 1,052 times, power is pretty much genetic, all right? There is a test called the standing vertical jump. Standing vertical jump is very good at measuring your ability to rapidly recruit large numbers of motor units into contraction. And this kind of thing is the direct window into your ability to, to display power, which is strength displayed quickly. The more motor units you can get into contraction at one time, the better power production you're going to have. People with big, tall, vertical jumps are very good at calling motor units into contraction. People with little bitty short vertical jumps are not very good at calling uh, motor units into contraction. And you can't take a man with an 18-inch vertical jump and turn him into even a 24-inch vertical jump. It doesn't occur. Because the ability to recruit large numbers of motor units into contraction at one time is genetics. Uh, it's been said that uh, elite athletics are dependent upon two things. Genetics and the presence of obsessive compulsive disorder. Those are the two factors that determine high-level athletic success. And if you don't have either one of those, you're not going to be an elite athlete, okay? Um, and the genetics part of this is the, is, is the part that controls the standing vertical jump. 36-inch uh, standing vertical jumps are born. They're not made, all right? So the improvement of power production is uh, limited to maybe 15 20%. To the extent that power improves, it's a direct function of strength, right? Let's say we've got a kid with an 18-inch, very, very average vertical jump. 22 is actually average. Let's say we got a kid with a 22-inch vertical jump. Male vertical jump, average for college-age males, 22 inches. Let's say we bring him into the weight room, 
and he is squatting the first day 155 for three sets of five. Let's say we train him for four or five months, and we get his squat up to 365. And then we continue to train him for four or five more months, and we finally get his squat up to 455. All right? Has his vertical jump gone up? No. Not much. It might have gone up from 22 to 23. Might have gone up to 24, but probably not. But what has happened to his power? His power has gone up quite significantly. Even though he can't hit you faster, he can hit you harder. He can hit you three times harder with three times more force because his force production capacity has gone up. But his explosive capacity is limited by his genetics. The P part of the equation, the the power is force times distance over time. The time denominator is the thing we don't have the ability to affect. But the force the F in the numerator can go up considerably, which means that P went up too. Um, in other words, if, you, if you've got a kid that is going to play football for you that's got a 22-inch vertical and he's the only one you can recruit, would you rather that kid be squatting two and a quarter or five and a quarter? Stupid question, huh? Well, if that's the case, then why have you got the kid doing dancing around with 15-pound dumbbells on an unstable ball and not adding five pounds to his squat three days a week? Why would you do that? You know why? Because you're not very good at your job. That's why. Right? Now to Ripito and the starting strength gang. Here's a little hair I'm going to. Dump into the floor. To rip this story, it's often heard through strength athletes and the healthcare professionals that as body weight increases, so does the chance of sleep apnea or related sleep impairing issues. Stan Efferding is one of the more popular strength coaches who stresses the issue greatly, having dealt with it at length during his powerlifting career when uh, at operating at a high body weight. What are my thoughts about the topic? Sleep apnea can be a problem. It certainly as hell can. All right. I don't suffer from sleep apnea under normal circumstances. But when I try to take a nap uh, in the afternoon, if I'm not laying in, in, the, in the right position, let's say I go in on, into my middle room and lay down on the massage table on my back, uh, I will have sleep apnea every time because what happens to me in that position is my airway collapses and prevents me from breathing. Once you relax enough to get to sleep, what happens is your airway collapses. And it's normally not collapsed when you're awake because muscle tone keeps it, you know, the motor units in your in the musculature, for example, your neck, uh, keep the airway open. But the minute you relax and the airway closes, you stop breathing. And what you'll what you'll notice is that you just wake up. And you're tired because you're still really asleep. Then you go back to sleep and then you quit breathing. And you wake up. And you're not aware of the fact that you've stopped breathing. But that's what's happened. And if you're affected by this every night, uh, then you've got sleep apnea. And it's a 
terrible chronic problem. It elevates your blood pressure. You never get to sleep. You're always tired. You're always in a shitty mood for obvious reasons. You're just tired all the, all the time because you haven't slept. And sleep deprivation is a real, real bad deal. It's an excellent torture technique, in fact. But if you're doing it to yourself because you're being hard-headed, you, they have a device called a CPAP, constant passive, what's it called? Constant passive airway, airway. promomulator or whatever. Continuous positive airway preambulation. Preterb, preterb natural supplementation. Something. So CPAP machine works. I know a lot of people use CPAP machines. It's like night and day. They feel so much better with it. Uh, just changed their life completely. They went from feeling like shit all the time to feeling good all the time because they finally got to sleep. And if you have C, if you've got sleep apnea, you need to talk about a CPAP machine. Now there are, I'm aware that there are other techniques that have recently been developed for this. And, uh, this might be something you want to investigate. Uh, so I sleep on my side when I sleep on my side, I don't have any problems because my airway doesn't collapse down into my throat. All right. And I also use a nasal spray, oxymetazoline. It's Afrin. If you want to buy the, the store, the, the name brand, it's Afrin. But uh, all of the pharmacies in Walmart produce generic oxymetazoline. Oxymetazoline is a 12-hour product. So if you're looking at a 12-hour nasal spray, you're looking at oxymetazoline. Now, I, I know that you're yelling, oh, you'll get addicted to it. You'll get addicted to nasal spray. Because we all know people that have, you know, become nasal spray addicts and knocked over a liquor store to have enough money to, to, you know, pay for their oxymetazoline habit, you know. <laughs> Look, I've been using oxymetazoline for 35 years. I use it only at night before I go to bed. I've been using the same amount at night before I go to bed for 35 years. I wash my nose out every morning with saline solution, and I've had no trouble with it at all. But I, one thing I also haven't had is sleep apnea problems. All right, now before I get a CPAP, there may come a day when I need one, but I don't need one right now. And the reason I don't need one is because I sleep on my side and I use the oxymetazoline in my nose. About every other night I will use uh, fluconazole, a steroid, a nasal steroid. I'll use one spray in each nozzle, nostril every other night to keep the inflammation down so that the oxymetazoline works better. And I've had no trouble with it. And I would recommend that if you're having trouble sleeping, that you give that a try. You put some oxymetazoline in your, in your nose before you go to bed and see if that opens enough of your airway to keep you from having sleep apnea. Now, it very well may be that you can't control the position of sleep. When you, once you go to sleep, if you immediately flip over on your back and then you start waking up, then this trick is not going to be helpful to you. If you can't learn to sleep on your side, then, uh, and 
you primarily do that with a good mattress and enough pillow to keep your neck in line with your torso. And uh, if, if you can learn to sleep on your side, you may not need a CPAP. But if you're one of these people that's going to sleep on your back and be damned the consequences, then you're going to have to get a CPAP machine. But yes, in fact, sleep apnea is a very, very bad deal. It needs to be dealt with. And if you're a bigger guy, the bigger you get, the more meat there's going to be in your neck. And the more meat there is in your neck, the more likely your neck is going to be to collapse. Heavy body weights generally come along with sleep apnea in some form or another. And if your body weight has gone up and you find that you're not sleeping or that you just feel like shit all the time, this may very well be what it is. So give that some thought. Dear Rip, as I've gotten stronger from doing the program, I've developed a problem. My face and neck fills with tiny red dots after heavy squats. I'm an already an ugly fuck, and this is making it worse. My doctor prescribed antihistamines. <laughs> they didn't help after a month of taking them. <laughs> Your doctor prescribed Benadryl for patechia. This is called patechia. All right, look it up. P-E-T-E-C-H-I-A, patechia. And it's just little tiny broken blood vessels in uh, right under the skin. Uh, it is uh, it says it's happening to him on volume day and intensity day. Uh, it's the pressure. I'll bet you're taking the Valsalva incorrectly. I'll bet you're holding your Valsalva in your mouth instead of with your mouth open. All right, here's a piece of advice we have to give. Seems like once a week. If you're having problems with your Valsalva, it's making you pass out one thing or another. Take your Valsalva with your mouth open. Watch carefully. That's how you take your Valsalva. You don't do it like this. Try the two. You'll notice that one feels stupid. And the other one feels normal. Okay? Take your breath with your mouth open. Hold it. Squeeze. If you try to hold your Valsalva in your mouth, you're going to put a whole bunch of pressure on the areas that you're talking about, your face and neck. That's not necessary. Your problem is the Valsalva. You're doing it wrong. All right? But even if you're not doing it wrong, you've got little fucking broken blood vessels in your face. Who cares? You're a kid. Who cares what you look like? Nobody cares what kids look like, do they? Bree, if you were a single woman, would you fail to date somebody that had little broken blood vessels in her face and neck, on his face and neck? No. No. See, don't worry about silly shit like that. Okay. All right, here's an 86-year-old geezer who has to work out in his apartment as the gyms are closed. He's not allowed to train in a gym because the gyms are not allowed to open. He uses elastic bands and tubes for strength training. What do you recommend for cardio? He's in an apartment. I've been walking in an area where there are very few people around. Walking's not really conditioning. Paul, that's not, that's not. Look, you live in an apartment. What are the chances that Paul lives 
in an apartment that's more than one story. It doesn't say here that he's, it doesn't say where he lives. Let's see. Say he's in an apartment. He's got a two-story apartment, three-story apartment. I would just walk the stairs. That's what I'd do. Because, listen, for conditioning, at the age of 86, you're not going to train the thing anyway. All right. Everybody understands the difference between training and exercise, right? So here's the situation. If you are doing real, actual, no-shit strength training for Essentially, everybody doing that, the training itself provides enough conditioning stimulation for what you need to do. Now, Paul's in a situation where he's he's not allowed out of his apartment. He's not allowed to go to the gyms because the gyms are not allowed to be open. So he might need to do some extra cardio. Okay, I can understand a person that wants to do that. I'd just walk the stairs. I'd run. What I would do, this is what I would do in order to keep soreness down, I'd run up the stairs and I'd take the elevator down. I'd do that four or five times. Run up the stairs, go to the elevator, take the elevator down. And what this does is eliminate that eccentric component that you experience when going down the stairs. Eliminates that potential source of soreness 86 year old geezers got enough problems without being sore all the goddamn time right so that would be what i would do but the takeaway here is that if you're doing legitimate strength training you're getting some conditioning how much conditioning do you want i mean paul you're 86 you're yep you're one foot in the grave and another one on a banana peel already I mean, you probably aren't even going to be alive to hear this response. Since this was turned in in April, Paul's probably already dead. My condolences to his family. Look, she's trying to she laugh, but laugh. She's trying to laugh, but she's, she's, she's decided it's not polite to she's laugh. For Paul. She's a good girl. Bree's a good girl. All right. Paul's okay. Paul's all right. He's fine. Dead or alive, he's Paul's kicked alive. enough ass in his life to where, you know. All right. Training Brazilian jiu-jitsu has resulted in a chronic shoulder injury that impacts my ability to do push-ups and pretty much prevents me from bench press. Not in my right traps since pain through my anterior deltoid during the eccentric motion of both exercises. I found that the press causes no pain. I'd like to focus on that exercise. Uh, for functional purposes, uh, I'm excited for strength development. I and mean, just because I think the press is badass, man, dude, it's badass, dude. Is that the proper use of the word, dude? Yeah. I say man it's big. instead of dude. Interchangeable. That's old guy thing. Yeah, it's interchangeable. We say man. They say you say dude. I say man. It's a 90s. When, when did that happen? 90s. 90s, 90s is when it all changed over. Dude, right? That was like uh, Bill, and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Keanu Reeves had a lot to do with this shit, didn't yep. he? Thanks, Keanu. Thanks, dude. Thanks, dude. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, just going to press. Can you please find out any advice, pitfalls, or caveats to this pro? Something I do in addition to make up for the lack of bench press. Now, 
you know, you're not going to make up for not bench pressing by just doing some more presses. All right. I think you need to bench press, even if it's just light. Every once in a while, what you might try is pressing three days a week for about six months and then go back to the, to the bench and see if it doesn't feel better. Uh, but I think you need to do some push ups or some something anterior to keep your pecs from getting floppy because that's, that's embarrassing. Even for a BJJ guy, that's embarrassing. Okay. Now let's see here. Oh, thank you for the entertaining podcast. The years of wisdom you share with us. I'd appreciate your giving me the benefit of the experience in settling this matter. Background. 15 months ago, he's 43, took up strength training, initial results were shitty. However, I have stuck with it and been shooting up ever since. Past week, set a PR deadlift at 575 to complement my squat and bench press. Also, I'm into fisting. Is the improvement in line with what you've seen given my age and duration? Can I expect similar upward slope of gains for another few years perhaps no no matt you're not going to have a 2000 pound deadlift anytime soon that's not going to happen if you'll look at the diagram on the cover of the only book that's ever been written that actually deals with programming practical programming for strength training third edition you will see what happens over time and what happens over time is your strength approaches a limit asymptotically. Now, you remember this from pre-calculus. A limit and an asymptote, all right? That's the curve as it approaches a limit. It's, it's the, uh, the graphic representation of the principle of diminishing returns. You're not going to go up in a linear fashion. Don't plan on that. That's why complicated. That's why programming gets more complicated as you get more advanced in your training. We've written an entire book on this, and I would suggest that you read the damn thing, okay? Because you might find it interesting. All right, uh, Rip, I've been training for roughly 13 years and spent a large amount of that time competing in powerlifting. I've started focusing on the press, but I come close to passing out most of the time I perform the movement. This happens regardless of weight and feels the same whether I use a barbell, dumbbells, or log. Yeah. One of those silly-ass things they, uh, they use in strongman to get the... So that the weight gets out here instead of where it needs to be, right over your shoulder. It just makes the press mechanically inefficient. It's badass, dude. But it is badass, dude. Dude. <laughs> I really sound stupid when I say that, don't I? No. I, no. You don't think so? No. Am I saying it with the correct accent? Dude. Yeah. It's That's better. Yeah. You can't say dude. Too bad Rusty's not here. Hi, dude. <laughs> dude. Thank you for your kind words, dude. <laughs> okay. Now, happens regardless of weight. 
Uh, years of bench pressing, neglecting the press, limited range of motion of the shoulder. So much that I look like John McCain when I tried to, tried to raise my hands all the way above my head. Well, I wouldn't have said something nasty Damn. like that about you, Jeremy. I can do presses seated if I move my head backwards. you have any potential solution? Yeah, here's what you need to do. To the extent this can be fixed, uh, what you need to do is spend some time uh, between every set of presses hanging from the chin-up bar. Now, if you can hang from the chin-up bar and show a straight line between the bar and the shoulder joint, and this is the alignment that we're looking for. That's efficient mechanical alignment. So there's no moment arm between the shoulder joint and the barbell in your hands over your head then that's what you need to do. You need to stretch, use that as a stretch, and make that position more and more accessible by doing it in tension as opposed to compression like when you press, okay? So what I this is what I would suggest that you do is before you press, uh, just climb up in the on the chin-up bar in the rack and hang for a minute. Just hang straight down. And then take the empty bar. And press it overhead for your warm-up set. And try to get in the same position with the bar overhead that you had when the bar overhead was the chin-up bar you were hanging from. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, what we're trying to do is get closer and closer to having the barbell over your head in a position directly vertical directly vertical to the glenohumeral joint. And this might take you six months to do it, but unless there is bony impingement, and there may be, you don't say how old you are, but unless you have bony arthritis in your shoulder, you ought to be able to do that over time. It took me quite a while to get it done, but um, I can lock out a press directly overhead now, but that's how I did it is with that particular stretch. And then you add some weight for your next warm up set, do the set. Try like hell to get back in that same position between sets, hang. Between sets, hang. And just try that approach and see what happens. And I think that you'll find that over not that long amount of time that your your pressing position becomes that much more efficient. Okay, all right, good Friday to you, Rip. What safety measures would you take before training someone who's had a stroke, assuming they've regained some control over their muscles? Well, now, this is an interesting question. There is nothing about training with weights that causes strokes. There's nothing about training with weights that exacerbates a stroke risk. There's nothing, and I know that sounds crazy to you people, but that's the truth. And there's nothing about a stroke that means that you, having had a stroke, that means that you can't successfully get stronger through a correctly applied barbell strength training program. Now, there are two types of strokes, okay? There is what is called an ischemic stroke, where something blocks the flow of blood in the brain. It might be an air bubble, might be a piece of a plaque that is broken loose, uh, in the peripheral circulation or in the carotid arteries that supply blood to the brain and that, that chunk of whatever it is flows through uh, the smaller and smaller capillary bed until it blocks the flow of blood and now you've got an ischemic stroke which means the loss of blood supply to the area. The other type of stroke, and those are far more common than this other type of stroke which is called a hemorrhagic stroke. 
And a hemorrhagic stroke occurs when uh, a person's blood vessel ruptures and blood flows out of the vein or the artery into the brain tissue surrounding the rupture. If you have had a stroke, you will know you've had the stroke because there are there will be neurological complications to your activities. Uh, most people who have a stroke lose feeling or function in a certain part of the body. Uh, and the effects of the stroke may be temporary and they may be permanent depending on the severity of the stroke and the severity of the compromise of the tissue affected by the stroke. Uh, some strokes are fatal. We all know people that have died of stroke. If you've got a big, giant, major vessel rupture in your brain, you're conscious for 10 or 15 seconds, and then you're gone. Okay? Uh, what's, uh, probably the most famous example of this is a ruptured berry aneurysm in the brain. I know people that have died of those things walking across the front yard. They just were walking across the front yard. They started to feel funny got a confused look on their face. They fell down in the grass and were dead. This is a quick, painless way to go. But gone you are. Most of the time, however, uh, the, the effects of a stroke are largely reversible if it's a small, manageable stroke. And once the situation is, is treated medically and is essentially gone, uh, I don't think there's a contraindication for strength training. I don't know what the contraindication would be except an overabundance of caution, uh, which is another word for cowardice. We've heard that recently. You know, an overabundance of caution in the event of the COVID-19 pandemic, that's a word for cowardice. All right. It prevents you from getting things done that you should have gotten done and that you could have gotten done. And this kind of advice for a stroke patient is the same damn thing, all right? If you, continue, if you have a stroke and you want to continue to function normally, it behooves you to be as strong as you can get. And there's only one way to get strong, and that is incrementally using the stress, recovery, adaptation model we advocate, and the most effective way to apply that is with the barbell. And that applies to everyone that can possibly use a barbell. Sometimes a stroke leaves a person partially paralyzed on one side. This unilateral paralysis presentation is a problem for strength training. It requires some help. You're going to have to get some coaching from a guy uh, that knows how to deal with people in this particular situation. There's some, there's some things that have to be changed. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. It doesn't mean you shouldn't train for strength. So my recommendation is that once you're cleared to go, that you find somebody that knows what to do to help you with this and get busy like the rest of us are because you will benefit even more than we will from getting stronger. This is kind of along the same lines. Hi, Rip, taking a PT class. And by that, I think he means physical therapy he may mean personal training but probably not if he's in this country we were discussing training clients with pvd and cad the recommendation of course 
was low-intensity endurance exercise and stretching. Of course. And, of course, I know better, he says. My question is, what precautions would you take before strength training a client with coronary artery disease or peripheral artery disease? Thank you. All right. Ben, if you are training people over the age of 65, you are already training people with coronary artery disease or peripheral artery disease. All right. One of the reasons we train is because we make these diseases much more manageable, and in some cases, we make them go away. I wouldn't take any precautions other than the precautions you're going to take with an older an older client when they first show up anyway. You're going to be conservative with them on the first couple of workouts while you teach them the movement patterns, and then you're going to gradually bring them up just like the model calls for, and after they've been training a couple of years, if they aren't dead, then everything worked out pretty good. Okay, and I don't think that there's, you know, just as I previously said about the, about the stroke patients, I don't believe there's an indication against using barbell strength training for, for people with these disease profiles. So many people have it that if you're going to be training people in that older demographic, it's, it doesn't hurt them. It helps them, okay? Now, last question, short of time. I'd rather do this one than either this one or this one since you're getting bored and I'm getting hungry. Guten Tag, Rip. Guten Tag, Herr Rip. What's your top three things you were wrong about in the last 10 years and have since changed your opinion on, training or otherwise? Well, first is martinis. I used to think martinis were stupid. But since bourbon is $700 a bottle, I have arrived at a new appreciation for martinis. All right, second... Uh, was uh I have changed my mind about is Germany. Okay? I'm less happy with Germany than I once was. And the third thing is guys named Alexander. I don't like them at all. all right? So, you asked, I answered. Anything else? What did I miss? Bree, you got anything you want to add? Well, you have to say uh-uh into the microphone. You can't just... Uh-uh. Cause, there you go. Because we can't see your head shake. Nick, you got anything interesting? to? Not yeah? interesting, no. Nothing not, interesting. Not interesting? No. One thing I'll say... I, I can't tell that, you this. Did, if you ever get shot with a rubber bullet in the leg... Right. Don't put a fucking tourniquet on it. I was going to bring this up. The... the I saw this the other night. This, of course, is, you know, during the middle. Those of you in the far distant future don't remember what happened this week. There were riots. The little pussies from Antifa, little white kids from Antifa, little trust fund babies, junior sociology majors, senior English majors that comprise the entirety of Antifa, Antifa, however they say. One of them got, one of them got hurt in a riot. One of them got hurt. His leg got scratched. 
His leg was scratched. And the kid, so immediately he's surrounded by 15 other little pasty white fucks from Portland. And they're, and they're, they see, oh, God, his pants torn. There's blood. So they put a tourniquet on his leg. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. What do you think those kids would do? Oh, they didn't put it on right. Oh, no. They just heard they should. Right. Well, what do you think those kids would do if they broke into my gym and I put a round of number four buckshot into their guts, which is what I plan on doing? How do you think they'd react to that? To Where would they put the tourniquet? <laughs> As their precious bodily fluids leak out onto the concrete floor. <laughs> no, look. Those of you rioters and looters, don't break into Wichita Falls Athletic Club. It won't go like you think it's going to. I promise you. Send bachelors. Uh, send bachelors. <laughs> if you're going to do that, make sure you don't have any dependents. All right. Uh, thanks for being with us this week. You know, every once in a while, you just got to have some fucking fun. So here we are. We'll talk to you next Friday. Later. Later.